time to get on, though, with um, the sermon. I had... Uh, I wonder if I should. <laughs> Valerie's not in this service, and she said I shouldn't. Um, all you need is love. <laughs> love, love, love is all you need. Pascal said when he heard me trying to sing it, he thought that I was playing a recording. <laughs> of course, that's the Beatles. I was going to sing a little bit of the Backstreet Boys. They have a song uh, that, as long as you love me, and I kind of like that one. I then uh, did in my uh, little AI app that I have on my phone, I asked, how many songs are there about love? And I got like four paragraphs. And basically what they said is it's incalculable and that every day in some place in the world, people are uh, making up songs about love. It's the most sung about emotion, period, just period. And so I've called the sermon for love or nothing, and you'll understand as we go through this sermon in 1 Corinthians 13. But you see, love is so important that without love, we have loneliness. Without love, we have, like, we're empty. We need love. And Paul has some amazing things to say about love this morning that, that I'm looking forward to explaining as we go through this incredible passage. Now, last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the last verse read, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. The New Living Translation has it at the end, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Biblical scholar and commentator Adolf Harnack, born in the 1800s, called 1 Corinthians 13, quote, the greatest, strongest, deepest thing Paul ever wrote. I believe he had it right, but it is also the most misused chapter in the Bible by many teachers, including me. I have used it when counseling troubled marriages to hopefully change the attitude of one or both minds of the couple. In other words, many teachers love to teach or quote this passage completely outside the context for which it was written. Now, that, that is not her it's not heresy to do that or even completely wrong, but this passage finds itself in the middle of much teaching regarding so-called spiritual gifts. And without it, spiritual gifting usually becomes a contentious issue. But understanding chapter 13 in context should eliminate any contention, helping us to look forward to how the Holy Spirit works through each of us in the church, which of course is the name, the body of Christ. Now, last week, we studied the anatomy of the church using the human body, comparing it to the body of the church, the structure of the church. And hopefully, we discovered how and why the church is God's picture of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, inviting the world 
to ask us about the eternal hope we have because of our love for one another and for Jesus. Jesus himself said in his prayer in John chapter 17 that the world has that right, that they must see us, and seeing our love for one another will prove the reality of who he is. Now, two weeks ago, we were introduced to a short list describing the kind of gifting the Holy Spirit reveals in each of our lives. And last week, we saw the importance of each of us as part of the church, especially at the local level. The local church gathered and the local church scattered. And of course, Paul ends by telling us that we are to desire the greater gifts, that's a plural, gifts, which brings up the obvious question, what are these gifts? these greater gifts. Paul is addressing the gathering of the church in Corinth. He's encouraging them to understand the most important aspect of the relationship with one another. So along with the church in Corinth and our congregation in Sarasota, we must desire the greater gifts. Now, last week we learned that all the gifts are chosen for us by the Holy Spirit. And as a congregation, we must eagerly desire the greater gifts to be manifested or revealed among us. Now, the greater ones, of course, are those that edify and help others. After all, that's the purpose of the gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, and the New Living Translation reads, So, you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. And then Paul seems to change the subject, but he hasn't. He introduces us to a word that in many ways defines Christianity, and that word is love. And it is at this point the most important aspect of the character of God or the fruit of the Spirit. We all know the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I didn't put it on the screen, but the next verse says that against such things, there's no law. All those things are lawful and necessary. And this is a, a picture of how the Spirit of God wants to mold each of our individual lives. If we truly love, then the other eight aspects of the fruit of the Spirit will be increasingly revealed in our lives. So that is why I called the sermon for love or nothing. If we don't love, then nothing else matters. It is through understanding and choosing love over every other wrong attitude that we become like Jesus and attract others to the good news about Jesus. It's a picture of the cross. Ray Stebman writes this. Now, there's a big difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is what God is after. That is the character of Christ coming through. The gifts are given to enable us to achieve an increasing degree by mutual exercise the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit is what God is after, and every congregation should be infinitely more concerned with the fruit of the Spirit than they are with the gifts of the Spirit, unquote. 
Paul never calls love a gift. If that were so, then I could say, well, I don't have to love because I don't have the gift of love. What Paul is communicating here is that the only context for the exercise of the spiritual gifts is the context of love. Without love in the Christian life, nothing is of much value. The contextual purpose of this passage is not to produce a great poem on love, but to exhort the Corinthians to start with to produce the fruit of love. Love is not a gift, and this does not just describe love. This is a passage full of verbs. Verbs are like commands that describe what love does, not what love is. The word agape for love is used over and over again in this passage. Uh, This word agape in the Greek language was in disuse in Paul's day. But the Christians revived the word to use it for the, their expression of God's love. Example, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that's one of those verses that we should just stop and think about. Uh, you see that... We are the objects of God's love. And agape love must become part of our lives. That means we are commanded to love others in the church, even if those others are not loving. None of us were agape loving either until God's agape love saved us. Every one of us has the Holy Spirit every one of us who are Christians, has the Holy Spirit who is God and therefore enables us to love each other with the love God demonstrated at the cross. It's important that we don't take this passage out of its context. This passage on love is going to instruct us to think about others in priority above how we think about ourselves, especially as we gather together in worship. There was much misuse of gifts during the Corinthian gatherings. The gifting of the Holy Spirit was being used to control others, to make oneself look spiritual. One could say many who had gifts such as tongues and prophecy or knowledge or wisdom were making themselves look far better than was the case. Gordon Fee says to earnestly desire expressions of the Spirit that will build up the community is how love acts in this context. Paul is going to show them that spirituality is being filled with the Spirit. You know I don't like the word filled. I like the word control better. It's, it's a better translation of the Greek word. Uh, to be, we're to be controlled by the Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit, and people ask us sometimes, are you Spirit-filled? And I would say if they ask me that, I have the Holy Spirit, and I'm allowing Him to control my life because we have to be activating that also. He doesn't force Himself on us. So Paul is going to show them that spirituality is being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit who expresses through us various grace gifts. I like to call them grace gifts because we're saved by grace. We don't deserve salvation, and we don't even deserve the gifts that God gives us, the grace gifts. 
and they're for the common good in an atmosphere of love, a spirituality that changes behavior. And he starts with the most obvious problem, tongues. And even as he starts off, he's probably talking about two things. He's talking about the gift of tongues, which we're going to study in detail next week, but he's also talking about people who have just the gift of being able to speak, too, that are impressive speakers. And he says in verse 1, so if you look in your Bibles, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging Symbol. The word resounding is interesting. It's a word for echo. You could just imagine gong, 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 you know, or a clanging symbol. Now, I can't overemphasize the context of this passage. We must read all of the Corinthian letter and see just how unloving their behavior was. They were dividing over their favorite preachers. I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Jesus. I, you know, all their favorite preachers. And, and so they were allowing sexual impurity in the church. They were getting drunk, believe it or not, at the communion service, and they were divided along social lines, rich and poor, and they spoke in tongues. The pagan cults, many of those in Corinth that come out of, were associated with the sound of gongs or clanging cymbals, lots of noise to attract the gods, but no meaning and no love. And then he goes on to say, Paul, if I have the gift of prophecy, and there's anybody hearing this read in the church is thinking, he sure does, and can fathom all mysteries. Now, you remember the mysteries here aren't Agatha Christie mysteries. They're, they're Old Testament pronouncements about what this new age that has come after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost is uh, it, it reveals. We have the New Testament, so it's revealed for us, especially in the New Testament. And Paul's saying, even if I understood every prophecy in the Hebrew Scriptures uh, and could fathom all mysteries and explain them perfectly, and all knowledge, I had all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And you should know that the phrase fathom all mysteries and all knowledge was used in Jewish apocalyptic literature to refer to the end times. Now, apocalyptic literature is a kind of literature. Uh, the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible is full of apocalyptic literature. It's sign language, but it's true in what the signs mean. It's the truth. And so uh, the Jews were used to that kind of apocalyptic literature. Daniel chapter 2, we see it there also, and, uh, we, which we studied recently. And Paul is saying that even if we understood all the charts picturing the end times and had the strongest faith possible, but are not loving towards one another, we are nothing. And then this one's really powerful. Verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast. Now, now, just let's think about this for a minute. He's saying, if I sell everything and give it all away to the poor so I have to sleep in a tent or on the city streets, 
Or uh, another translation would translate it uh, instead of body hardship, if I surrender my body to the flames, if I'm willing even to be a martyr, I give up everything and I'm willing to be a martyr so I can boast about this, but do not have love, I gain nothing. No one can, nothing one can do, regardless of how dramatic or self-denying, can make up for the lack of love. But now we have, in the passage, 15 verbs to describe love. And as I said, verbs are like commands describing what I do. So here it is, verse 4 in your Bibles. Love is patient. Love is patient. And love is kind. Now, the word patient in an older translation is translated long-suffering, and it means it's talking about with people. So love is patient with people, and love is kind. I love, I love the word kind. Uh, it's my second favorite uh, Christian word. First favorite is joy, and the next is kind. Kindness is so important. And love does not envy. And it doesn't boast. And it's not proud, verse 5. It does not dishonor others. Here's a good way just to translate that. You could just translate it, love is not rude. And it's not self-seeking. And it's not easily angered. And Valerie likes this one. I don't know why. It's not touchy. That's what it means. Not touchy. Not touchy. I'll say it differently when she's here in the next service. <laughs> and then it says it keeps no record of wrongs. I really like the Tyndall Living Bible. We don't use it much anymore. It's not a translation, of course. But it, instead of saying it keeps no record of wrongs, it's written, it's a paraphrase, hardly even notices, love hardly even notices when others do it wrong. That's, that's pretty, uh, pretty impossible, isn't it? Now, let's go back to the word kind again. This is interesting to me. Uh, the word for kind in the verb form is used only here in the New Testament in Greek language. Not anywhere else outside of the Bible either. Only here. So some suggest that Paul might have made up the word and it became known among the Christians. Nevertheless, he used a form of the word in my favorite verse in Ephesians where it comes to forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he writes, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, and this is the key, just as in Christ, the Messiah, that's Jesus, God forgave us. This verse makes it clear that Paul is talking about people who are patient and kind to other people. We often think of patience in difficult circumstances, but here it is written of people who learn to love insufferable people. People that won't straighten out like my toe. Now, that's an inside thing. If you weren't here last week, you don't know what I'm talking about. It's on Facebook. Somebody already said, I'm so glad I don't have Facebook because I'm told your toes on Facebook. <laughs> Patience is the passive 
attitude we have toward the difficult. And kindness is the active thing we do for others, difficult or not. It's important that we see our relationship with the people in the body, that's the church, as God's primary testing ground for our Christian character. If we don't hang in, hang in there for one another now, what have we got? There's a little couplet. It's supposed to be funny, I think, but it's not, but it's true. It's not the saints above that give me trouble. It's the saints below who make me stumble. Agape love is never jealous of others, but is pleased when others are blessed by God with great spiritual success. Paul uses a word for boasting that we would translate as being a windbag. Paul had a sense of humor, and they would have understood that. As some in Corinth were boasting about their superior wisdom and gifting. You cannot boast about yourself and still care more about others than yourself. And then Paul pulls another picturesque word out of his vocabulary. We translate it as pride, but the real meaning is to be puffed up. And so you can just imagine people in the congregation in Corinth, and this is being read, they're coming to mind in their, eyes, in their inner eyes, they're seeing uh, windbags and puffed up people, and they're probably trying not to look over to that part of the congregation. So this word describes an arrogant person with an air of superiority, someone stuck on oneself. A great quote here is, quote, love is concerned to give itself, not to assert itself. And then in verse 5, I added the word rude. Love is not rude. This word means to behave indecently or disgracefully. In chapter 11 that we studied, uh, social differences were being enforced at communion services, therefore shaming the have-nots. That was rude. Christian love cares too much for the community to behave in such unseemly ways. Now, self-seeking describes someone who always wants their way. Someone who is not self-seeking is unselfish and doesn't insist on everything their way. This is almost a complete opposite of what love does. I believe this is the most convicting of all. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, a couple of verses, verse 24 reads, Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. And verse 33 reads, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. This attribute of love cuts to the very core of our sinful nature. We are not to do what's right or even what's all right, but we are to do what is beneficial for the community. We are not to seek what is good for me, but what is good for thee, what is good for everyone. Someone wrote, it does not seek its own love. It does not believe that finding oneself, that's a new age idea, it's of the devil, is the highest good. It is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, self-worth. To the contrary, love seeks the good of one's neighbor or enemy or enemy. You've heard Jesus said, 
that we're to love our neighbor and hate our enemy? He says, well, I tell you, you're to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's the upside-down kingdom. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 reads, Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. And then we have the example of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. You must have the same attitude. We must have the same attitude or the mind, the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. You have control over your attitude, by the way. So we must have the same attitude that Christ, that's the word for Messiah, whose name is Jesus, had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality of God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and that's the right translation, not servant, and was born as a human being. That's the incarnation, Mary, Joseph, Christmas time, all that kind of stuff. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, the Father, and died a criminal's death on a cross. Oh, when they first heard that, read to them uh, in the church in Philippi, uh, people would have been crushed because they had that visceral understanding of the cross that we don't really have. And even Jesus himself, you remember in our study of, of Daniel, we saw, I think it's Daniel 7, where you have the Son of Man uh, come to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is the Father, and the Son of Man is the Messiah. It's, it's Jesus. And Jesus took the phrase, the Son of Man, from there and called himself the Son of Man. And when doing that, he was claiming deity. And he knew that especially the religious leaders would understand that. That's one of the reasons they were so upset at the way he talked. So in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says of himself, for even... I did not come to be served. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life, he says, as a ransom for many. He was God, and he gave his life for us. And then we have the statement that love is not touchy or easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. In my reading, I read this, and I edited it quite a bit. Sometimes... A person can get dreadfully on my nerves. Love cannot alter the fact that he gets on my nerves. But love can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. That's quite a statement. I would put it this way. Love always thinks the best of others at the motive level. Love doesn't hold grudges or expect others to finally see things my way. Love loves regardless. Now look at verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is important that he puts that where he does uh, so that we don't overlook the fact that truth is, more, is the most important thing here. Uh, love, love has the right priority. Love sees things from the perspective of the truth of the gospel. Therefore, love is never happy about the misfortunes of others, regardless of what the others have done in the past. Love never delights in the fall of another, whether friend or foe. But love is not naive. 
I may love, but I still care very much about biblical morality and truth. I rejoice in the truth, but despair when evil reigns. In John 14, 6, Jesus says that he is the truth. And in the body of Christ, the truth must be clear. In the church, the truth must be clear in the way we live and in the way we love and in the way we care for one another. Now, let's not forget that this chapter 13 is being used of Paul to correct the lack of one another love in the local church gatherings, especially in Corinth. That means our marriages, our business dealings, and our biblical lifestyles will be admired by some who are not believers, but hated by many who have no idea of biblical truth and love unless they receive the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and are changed by the Spirit of God. Well, now let's move to some positives. Verse 7. Verse 7. Love always protects always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. In other words, love purposely sees what is right in another rather than pointing out what is wrong. Love protects the other person. One version of the Bible translates it this way, love is always eager to believe the best. Now, there's always watching or even somebody here that you're, you're kind of, you've been, you've been through some difficult times and this is, you, all, all you're thinking of is you're cynical. Naive. What you're saying, Pastor Carl, is just naive. I agree. It's true. But love is willing to give others the benefit of the doubt and love doesn't lose faith in God's people. Why? Because God is always working in all his people. And these four words, protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres, tell us that love can put up with anything. And that's why in, still in verse 7 it says, it always hopes, but always perseveres. The New English Bible reads, there is nothing love cannot face. And then, of course, I love the word perseveres, and some of you could yell out the, uh, the Greek word for it. I've used it so often, hupomone, hupomeno here in the way the grammar is. Love perseveres, and this word is a picture of a soldier in a war who never gives up the fight even to death. Love pours itself out in ministry to others in the body of Christ regardless of the circumstances or disappointments. Even Shakespeare gets into the, uh, to it with Sonnet 116. Love is not love that alters when alteration finds. Love is not love that alters when alteration finds. The whole sonnet is all about love. Here is a, a, an exercise, especially for those who are married. I, I really fought with myself whether I was going to whether I was going to add this in, but I think it's important. I've often had married couples read the Tyndale Living Bible version of the love chapter to each other. So what I would do is I would read it first, and then I would hand them, I'd already made it, hand them a copy with their names uh, to read to each other. And it, well, I changed it some, but they'd already heard it in the original paraphrase. And so it would be something like this. They're looking in the, uh, each one's reading, and they're looking in the husband, looking in his wife's eyes, or the wife looking in the husband's eyes. And uh, so I could imagine 
looking at Valerie and starting it off by saying, I am very patient and kind. We'd have to wait for the laughter to... (laughs) (laughs) Never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. And I don't demand my own way. And I'm not irritable or touchy. And I don't hold grudges. And I'll hardly even notice when you do wrong. (laughs) I don't recommend reading it that way. But imagine if you're looking in your wife's eyes, your husband's eyes, uh, and if you love someone, I love you. And I'm going to be loyal to you no matter what. It doesn't matter what the cost is. I'll always believe in you. I'll always expect the best of you and always stand my ground in defending you. Boy, that, that would help put a marriage back together. It's a good picture of love. I'm not a huge fan of the Message Bible, but sometimes he, he gets things just right. It reads this way. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. I like this. Love doesn't strut doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Wow. Now, it's worth pointing out that The above description is an accurate portrayal of Jesus. You could replace the word love with Jesus and receive the correct picture of love. Now again, the cynic. Pastor Carl, I could never be like that. Yes, you can. If you're filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus hanging on the cross naked, bleeding and unrecognizable because of the beatings he endured, if he can say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, then we can forgive like that. Stephen did in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, being stoned for talking about the resurrection. And he says, don't, don't you know, forgive them, forgive them, just like Jesus said. And then the cynic says, but <laughs> if, I treat every, if I treat everyone like you're saying... I will inevitably be taken advantage of. And I say, you're absolutely correct. I've had it happen to me many, many, many times. Jesus even treated his murderous enemies with love, and he was definitely taken advantage of. The answer to that is two words, but God, but God. But God, who rewards us for obedience, causing all things to turn out for our eternal good and his eternal glory. So now, now, Paul contrasts the permanency of love and the importance of gifts. Love, you see, is forever. Tongues is not. Therefore, tongues is not the sine qua non of spirituality. Love is. This passage, by the way, nowhere suggests that the gift of tongues will pass away this side of eternity. Right after the passage, uh, Paul in chapter 14, which we'll study next week, lays down the rules for exercising the gifts, including tongues. His emphasis is that we are to eagerly desire gifts, but remember that they are only temporary and love is eternal. 
And so he says that in verse 8. Look at verse 8 now. Love never fails. In other words, love is permanent. But where there are prophecies, well, they'll eventually not be necessary anymore. They'll cease. Where there are tongues, well, they'll be stilled. Uh, where there is knowledge, that's that word gnosis. We've talked a lot about it. The Corinthians were really into knowledge. It will pass away. Now, it should be obvious that the time of the passing away will be when this age that we're living in right now ends. Look at verse 9. For we know in part, in part, that means there's, we don't know everything. And we prophesy in part. In other words, we'll make mistakes regarding these gifts no matter how careful we are. Therefore, let love rule. Verse 10, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. We'll know everything then. First Corinthians chapter 1, 4 to 8, and for the fourth time I've used this in our exposition of 1 Corinthians, Paul says right at the beginning of his letter, I always thank God for you, Corinthians, because of his grace his unmerited favor given you in Christ, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, it's obvious that you really are saved. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day our Lord Jesus of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming uh, of Jesus when there's uh, when we'll come up for judgment, and it's just uh, not guilty. Out of here, you can go home to heaven. Now there'll be no perfection or completeness until the body of Christ is fully redeemed at the second coming of Jesus. In the meantime, we will need grace gifts of the Spirit working among us to build up the body. Now I like this, verse 11. When I was a child, Paul says, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. In the wonderful children's story about Neverland, where we meet Peter Pan and Wendy, he says, and I quote, I will never grow up. Paul's statement in verse 11 is the opposite of that. He is saying, I purposely put my childishness away, choosing to grow up and live in love. Paul is painting a great picture here. He has grown up in the Lord and leaves his self-centered childishness behind him. Oh, may we all make that choice. We are not living in Neverland. In this present church age, we do need grace gifts to continually build us up until Christ returns. Now look at verse 12. For now, Paul says, we see only a reflection. Now, the, 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 it's a difficult word because the word translated properly would be an enigma. Now, we don't use that word anymore much. So the word riddle would be great. For now we see only like a riddle. In other words, he says, for now we see only an inaccurate reflection. 
as in a mirror. Now, the mirrors in those days were made of bronze. They had lots of bronze, not glass, and therefore they could be, it could be shined up and you could see your reflection in it, but it'd be far from a perfect reflection. And so he says, for now we see uh, only an inaccurate reflection as in a dim mirror, and then we, then, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. A good paraphrase from a commentary is this. Now I am inquiring knowledge which is only partial at best. And then I shall have learnt my lesson, shall know as God in my mortal life knew me. A comparable metaphor for today would be the difference between seeing a picture of someone and then seeing them in person. The picture may even be very good, but never as good as the real thing. The partial knowing that now exists and therefore needs the Holy Spirit's giftings will finally fade to the complete knowing of God as we meet him face to face. And then he says, final verse, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. In this present age, we have faith in God for our salvation, saving faith. Hope for the future because of the resurrection and the second coming. And in our gatherings, we have love for one another. Love is the greatest because even though it exists with faith and hope, in eternity, faith becomes sight and hope is fully realized and is no longer needed, but love does forever. So my exhortation to all of you this morning mirrors the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy, his young son in the faith. I'm paraphrasing 2 Timothy 1.6, PCV version, Pastor Carl version. And so this is my exhortation for all of us this morning. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I remind all of you to stir up the gift which was given to you by the Holy Spirit and then you will see God at work in our church. Stand with me while I pray for you, and uh, we worship a little bit more. Uh, Father, I just pray for those who are online or here who may not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will open their eyes to the reality of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And if you are here and if you are online and you don't know Jesus, you know about him, but you have never developed a relationship with him, it all starts with the admission of guilt. To say, yes, God, I know I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. And I know that Jesus is God and that he died for my sins. And no matter how stumbling it may be, you can just simply say, dear Jesus, please save me. I want to be saved from my sin. And if you do that, however you do that, then you'll find that your whole life will begin to change, especially when you become part of a local part of the church, the body of Christ, and learn how to love and put up with and enjoy the saints of God as we gather together. And so, Father, I just pray that if there is anybody like that right now, you will save them. You will uh, just 
really reach in uh, to their lives. And then for the rest of us, Father, help us to be forgiving people. Help us not to hold grudges. Helpful to love anyway. And help us to forget about ourselves. And remember who you are and your love because you loved us first. And now we can love others by the same love. I didn't deserve what you did for me. None of us do. Therefore, Lord Jesus, just really send your spirit on our church in power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.